Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege of being able to worship you. And in this world that is filled with so many ideas and so many theories and religions and philosophies and this endless search for truth, Lord, and for you to have brought us to the truth and for that to be found in a person, in a relationship, Lord, with you. We are so very grateful. We thank you tonight for our salvation. We thank you so much for our relationship with you. Lord, we want to know you better. We know that great things happen in our lives as that happens. We do have a desire to not only live for you and to bring you pleasure, but we want our lives to make a difference in this world. We realize it's filled with people just like us that don't know where the truth is found yet, and we want them to at the very least see your kingdom in and through our lives. And so teach us your word tonight. Teach us about what's important to you and what you want imparted into our lives. Again, so many theories, and we have so many goofy ideas in our own head, in our own heart, Lord, and we pray that you would just wash them away with the water of your word tonight and teach us the way that is everlasting. And we ask for that work of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. The book of Matthew, chapter 17 tonight, didn't quite finish it last week as we uh, head into chapter 18 this evening. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, just flag one of the guys that are walking up the aisle and they'll put a Bible into your hand this evening so you can follow along this evening. We come here now in that last final section and lesson of chapter uh, 17 in the life of, of Jesus. And we're told in verse 24 that when they had come to Capernaum, that is Jesus and the disciples, those who received the temple tax, they came to Peter. They didn't come to Jesus. They came to Peter. And they said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And Peter spoke for Jesus and said, yes. And when he had come into the house after the inquiry, Jesus anticipated him. He is what is we know as being omniscient. He knows everything. He knew about the conversation, even though uh, it had occurred some distance away from him. And he said, what do you think, Simon? Uh, from whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes, from their sons or from strangers? And Peter said to them, from strangers. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Nevertheless, and then here is the underlinable section of, of the passage, lest we offend them, and the idea is needlessly offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, take uh, the fish that comes up first, and when you have opened its mouth, you'll find a piece of money, take that, and give it to them to pay the tax for you and for me. It's very important to understand the origin of this tax to understand anything about what Jesus is communicating to us as his disciples. This tax had its origin in Exodus, I think, chapter 30, under Moses, when God called Moses to take a census of the people, to number the uh, men of the nation of Israel. 
God always kind of did something like this whenever the people were being numbered because He didn't want people, the Jewish people or His people, to ever come to the idea that they were strong because of their numbers and for that to become a source of pride. God was their strength. And if God gave them a promise, then that promise was as sure and true as if five people believed in it and followed it or three million people did. So knowing our uh, capacity, propensity for pride, he said, when this numbering occurs, I want you to take this tax, a census tax, and every male was to give a certain sum of money and it was not an insignificant amount of money. It was a couple days' wages for a working man. That money was to be given to God. That money was then to be given to the support of the tabernacle and then ultimately of the temple. The interesting thing about this tax is that it was a one-time tax, uh, but leaders don't understand one-time taxes. And the religious leaders don't either. It was intended to be a one-time tax. And so Moses uh, levied it. The people were uh, obedient to it. But when the Jews returned from their Babylonian captivity, the Jewish religious leaders decided to reinstitute the tax. It wasn't required by God, but they did it anyway. And they started to levy it. It was another source of income for the upkeep of the temple and the religious services and so forth. And so they began to levy it uh, uh, against the Jews. At the time of Jesus, when he is in Capernaum at this point in time, uh, they are collecting this annual tax. They would go to various major cities in Israel. They would set up their booths and then receive the tax. That's what they're doing in Capernaum. What is important to understand about this is that this tax was not required by the law of Moses. It was, in essence, a tradition of the Jewish religious leaders. If this tax was required by the law of Moses, then Jesus would have already paid it because Jesus came. He said, I, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. He would have readily fulfilled any demand of the law of Moses. But he does not do that here because he understood correctly that the tax was intended to be a one-time thing. It becomes obvious to those that are collecting the tax that Jesus and Peter have not paid the tax. And not to pay the tax because of what uh, the Jewish religious establishment had made it uh, kind of a badge of spirituality. Even though it wasn't necessarily required by the law, it was a means by which you would communicate your seriousness about God, the seriousness of your relationship with God, your love for the nation of Israel, and so forth. So though a tradition, there was a very strong stigma attached to ignoring the paying of that tax. Jesus hasn't paid it because it wasn't a demand of the law. It was a tradition, and he tended to be fairly intolerant of man's traditions attaching themselves to God's people. And so he did that on principle. They come to Peter, and they say, how come your master hasn't paid the tax? And again, it's the idea that, you know, he's not serious about God, he's not serious about the Old Testament, and so forth. Peter, I think, and I'm kind of imposing myself upon him here, 
I think that when he answers that Jesus will pay the tax, either he has seen Jesus in the years prior. Jesus is in the final year. He's headed to Jerusalem to die at this point. So he has at least two full years of uh, ministry behind him, perhaps in previous years. He did pay the tax, and so Peter thought, well, he'll pay it again this time. Or maybe Peter was um, concerned for Jesus' reputation and basically just kind of blurted out that, yes, he will pay that, and he spoke on behalf of, uh, of Jesus. And so this is the commitment that he makes when he comes into the house again, Jesus, in his omniscience. This is why it, it, we're always at a tremendous disadvantage in any argument with God. The Bible says he knows our thoughts when they're afar off. Before we form them, he knows what we're going to think and what we're going to say. And, and so here he had watched all of this, and he poses the question, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from their strangers? In the ancient world, no king would tax his sons. Uh, And in the ancient world, a king was exempt from the tax. If a tax collector came to the house of a king and tried to tax the king and his sons, he'd be in danger of having his head uh, handed to him for the simple reason that kings and leaders in those days were already viewed as laying their life down for the kingdom. They were already living sacrificially. They were already giving sacrificially of their lives and monetarily and other ways in order to spend their lives for the strength and the advancement of the kingdom. So to come in and say, by the way, I'm going to tax you for the privilege of being a slave to this kingdom already would have been offensive. And so, and it would have been disrespectful. It would have slighted them for the sacrifice that they were making. And so, a king and his sons were exempt. The idea that what Jesus is communicating here is that it was wrong, uh, you know, philosophically, so to speak, for Jesus to pay a tax for the support of the tabernacle when the tabernacle was all about him. And also, Jesus was, the, was and is the Son of God, and the Son of the King was never taxed. So it violated a lot of things and a lot of kind of imagery on a physical level. And so Jesus wants Peter to know, listen, I don't have to pay this tax. On the basis of the law of Moses, I don't need to pay this tax. On the basis of how taxation occurs related to kings and their sons, I shouldn't have to pay this tax. That lays the whole table now for what uh, Jesus uh, does here. And Peter talks, answers him and says, yes, they tax strangers. They don't tax the king or his sons who are giving their lives to uh, serve that kingdom. And then Jesus said, well, then the sons are free. And Jesus was free on all levels from paying this tax. But then he says, nevertheless, lest we offend them, And the idea is not lest we offend them purely, but lest we offend them unnecessarily. Now, Jesus offended these people continually, but he didn't do it on purpose. He didn't wake up in the morning like you or I might, you know, and say, I'm going to poke a Pharisee in the eye today and uh, make him look stupid. Uh, God could do that to anybody anytime that he wants. But where 
somebody needed to be offended because of their position or they were cornering Jesus, he was happy to offend them if the truth was an offense to them because he was about the truth. He spoke the truth in love, the Bible says. And so, here is this, uh, this idea. The concern is lest we needlessly offend them. And the idea is that I, we don't want to offend them over something that is a tradition. This is a nothing. This is a non-issue. The paying of a tax that they're just using as a, an attempt to get more money and all. They've made it into a badge of spirituality. We don't want to offend the Jewish religious leaders, their Jewish establishment, on the basis of some kind of a tradition that they've made into a, a fundraising kind of thing. So, lest we offend them needlessly, Go to the sea, cast in the hook, take the fish that comes up first. You'll find in its mouth a sum of money. And so Peter did, and then he paid the taxes. It's a very, very important lesson for us as Christians. And it's, uh, I think, becoming increasingly more important for us as Christians. And that is, there are times when we, our lives will be an offense to people simply because we make a stand for right and for wrong, and our life will bring uh, conviction to their lives. The Bible teaches that the cross is an offense, and so there's no getting around being a Christian in this fallen world and not offending people even if we try not to offend them. But we should never offend them over non-issues or periphery issues. Um, if we're going to offend them, then they should be offended over issues in, uh, on hills that uh, are worth dying for. And so, here I am. I'm in a situation just like you are. I have family members who are not saved. I have neighbors who are not saved. Um, I can't say I have co-workers who are not saved, but they're all saved that I know of. Um, but, you know, we're all surrounded by these kinds of people. And and what, and we have a desire for their salvation. So let's say I'm at a barbecue at, at a neighbor's house or something like that, and I'm praying for this person's salvation. And maybe I've shared the gospel with them, or maybe I haven't been able to do that yet and all. And they come up to me, and they start to go on this big old thing on global warming. And they're convinced that it's just like the worst thing that's happening in the world right now today and uh, we've just got to stop it. And they, they have bought into the whole thing. Whether you buy into it or not, I'm, that's not my issue here. So I'm going to offend people. And, but, it, but here they come in and they lay this whole thing out. And here I am as a Christian. And I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, as it relates to the Bible, we are supposed to be good stewards of the earth and everything, but I know what's coming. This world's not going to be even recognizable during the Great Tribulation. I mean, anything you want to do about global warming, even if it is true, it's just moving chairs on the Titanic, and this is ultimately all going to give way to a new heaven and a new earth. What are you talking to me, you big stupid head, about global warming? It's a... Well, that's not a conversation I would necessarily have, but I say it to simply make the point. Politics is a great place to do this, to jump in on something. And what we can do is, here's a person that we desperately want to see saved, and we come in on issues that are highly divisive but unimportant to the soul of the person. 
And it's so important to show some self-control in this area so that we do not offend them unnecessarily. Offense will come. And there's all manner of things that we can enter into and immediately upon discussing that issue, you can sense that the bridge has been completely burned between you and them, and if you tried to witness to them now, they're not going to listen to a word we say. And so, hey, we like to have all these other conversations in our life, but there needs to be discernment related to this. And Jesus looked at it and He said, I am not going to allow them to pull me into this thing and brand me as being disloyal to the Word of God, not serious about God or the nation of Israel on this issue. They, this will be decided on other issues later, but I'm not going to fall for this. And for, it's a good word for so many of us who our hearts are burning over a multitude of issues that are going on in the world. We'd love to talk about anything and everything, but to be discerning and to realize, I need to keep my mouth shut on this particular issue because for this person, it will burn a bridge and it will hurt my ability to witness to them concerning the most important thing in life, the importance, the wisdom of steering away from those things that can unnecessarily offend uh, people. Chapter 18, and at that time, the disciples came to Jesus, and they asked him a question, who is then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, in Matthew's gospel, it looks like an innocent question, you know. It's like, okay, who's the greatest in the kingdom and all? But we go into Mark's gospel, and we find out that they've been arguing about this, even recently. And here are the apostles arguing about which one of the twelve is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. These are the apostles. And I, I mean, how embarrassing. They're walking down the road, no, I'm the greatest, no, I'm the greatest, no, I'm the greatest. On the basis of what? I'm the greatest. This was a legitimate argument they were having that they could not resolve so they bring the question to Jesus so he can identify which of the twelve is going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus then, he listens to all of this, and he responds by then calling a little child, verse 2, to him. He calls the child, the child comes to him, and he sets that child in the midst of him. The disciples have to be going Oh, no, it doesn't look like it's going to be any of us uh, 12 here uh, on this. And Jesus then answers them, and He said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So He answers their question, number one, in terms of how to be the, who's the greatest in the kingdom of God by talking about um, how... Uh, a person gains access into the kingdom of God. A person must become a Christian first in order to become great in that kingdom. And he tells them and us that we become great or we, we enter in, and you notice the word enter there in the passage, we enter in by becoming here uh, converted and becoming as little children. Most of you have probably heard the statistic that 
um, this, it's something like 80% or 90% of people who become Christians do so in their youth and in their childhood. And so often the person can grow older having denied, you know, uh, dismissed the gospel and so forth, and looked and said, well, that's something that, you know, it, 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 that's an evidence of the fact that it's unintellectual, and intellectual people won't have anything uh, to do with it. They've got to trap you while you're young and so forth, and they don't realize what Jesus is talking about here. Children have an innocence. Children have a, a beautiful, beautiful uh, faith, and entrance into the kingdom. It requires a conversion. It requires being uh, born again. It requires trusting in Jesus with a childlike faith. And children are very trusting. As the older we get, the more cynical uh, that we become. And there is no legitimate reason to be cynical concerning God. Everyone ought to be trusting of God, but we can become cynical as, as we grow older here. Now, it's very important to understand as we teach this in a Western culture that when he's using children as an example, he is using children uh, who are being raised in that ancient Middle Eastern culture where children really, as it used to be, were seen and not heard. There was tremendous respect for the family, the authority structure of the family. Children knew their place within the family. We are in a youth-oriented culture that we're in, and we see children that misbehave in kind of crazy kind of ways. And sometimes you're tempted to go over and do what the parent won't do in the restaurant or in the grocery store, whatever. So you have to realize that what he's talking about here is children being raised in a certain kind of way that's kind of foreign to us. These children were respectful toward authority, respectful toward adults, trusting of adults as a result of that. And so he talks about this is how you come into the kingdom of God. And, and Jesus is, in other words, Jesus is saying that we don't come into the kingdom of God based upon greatness. We do it as a a, a, uh, an act of our submission and, and humility here to God. So that's how we enter the kingdom. And then following coming into the kingdom, he says, therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. How do we become great in the kingdom of heaven? Humility. Humility. Pride, to see myself above, that's what pride means, is always a dead end because God always resists the proud, and He exalts the humble. The way, and these guys are very proud. They're having this argument over who's the greatest. And so Jesus says, you want to be great in my kingdom. Greatness is achieved through humility. Well, what does humility look like? Well, <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's right there in the passage, and it's fascinating. The humility is represented in the child. You notice the child didn't just walk over to Jesus. Jesus called the child to come to him, and the child obeyed his voice. And greatness in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven, is achieved by simply being obedient to the voice of God, whatever the cost might be, the voice of God through his word, by His Holy Spirit, 
through spiritual gifts, all of the different means by which He speaks to us. That's how greatness is achieved in the, the kingdom of God, humility marked by obedience to God's Word. And so, he said, whoever, verse 5, receives this little child like this in my name receives me. And so, greatness in the kingdom of God is also found in servanthood, in treating other people the same way that we would treat Jesus. And how would we treat Him? We're His servant. We would be His servant. So, greatness in the kingdom of God requires coming into the kingdom of God, humility marked by obedience, and then treating other people as, uh, as we would treat Jesus if, if, that, if Jesus were in that uh, person's place. Beautiful, beautiful uh, uh, response of Jesus uh, to uh, their question. Begins so kind of off target, and then He brings them back in such a spiritual way. And then in verse 6, something very sobering passage. Uh, Jesus uh, speaks about warning those who attempt to overthrow the faith of a little one. And here now, He's not talking about children specifically. He's talking about His children. He's talking about any disciple, any Christian who's come into the kingdom uh, of God. They're born again. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in Me, a Christian, to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. They had two millstones that were people used. You would have kind of like your household millstone that still weighed enough that if it was put around your neck and you were thrown in the Mediterranean Sea, uh, you're not going to make it. But this millstone is specifically speaking of an ass millstone. It was a millstone so great that it took a donkey or a large animal to move it. And so Jesus speaks and declares that if somebody overthrows or, in His words here, uh, causes one of His little ones, a Christian who's following after Him, He views us as His little ones. Those who believe in Him, they stumble a Christian in their faith. They lead them into sin. It would be better to have that millstone put around their neck and thrown into the ocean and then to face the judgment that they will one day face. I don't know about you. Sometimes you ever think about, it's a little melancholy, you ever think about different ways to die. I think you do mostly when you're younger. You get older and you say, I'll find out soon enough. <laughs> but one of the ways, you know, I mean, nobody wants to go by drowning. It's an awful thing. And, and so here's this millstone here, and yet a death like that, the judgment that awaits a person who leads a Christian into sin or overthrows the faith of a Christian, it, the judgment is going to be worse than having a millstone put around their neck and to be put uh, into the, the sea. I think about examples of this in our culture, this warning. Who is this warning leveled against? certainly against those that are engaged in religious persecution against Christians around the world, where knives are held to their throat or whatever the threat might be in trying to force Christians uh, to deny their faith, it would be better 
and, and compared to the judgment that Jesus is going to make sure comes their way, it would be better that a millstone were tied around their neck and they were drowned in the sea than the judgment that they'll one day face. I think about relig- uh, educators who attempt to undermine the faith of God's people in public education and elsewhere, scorning the Bible's account of creation, scorning the Bible's account of right and wrong, scorning the, uh, the idea of the biblical morality and all of these things, and this indoctrination that occurs. And for every educator who overturns the faith of even one Christian, it would be better for them that a millstone was put around their neck and they drowned in the sea than the judgment they will face for uh, attempting to overturn the faith of a child of God. It's serious business. It's the worst sin that you can commit against another person because all other things are just temporal. They only, even as horrible as I might sin against a person, uh, those sins are only temporary. They're, they're limited to this life in terms of the consequence of it. Uh, this is something that has eternal consequences. I think about drug lords and the lifestyle that they live, and here all of this money coming in, the corruption, the murders, the overtaking of entire countries, but the addiction, the leading of people, even God's people, into addiction to these drugs. Jesus meets this warning out against them. I think about all of the people people in the world that make money leading people into sin, ensnaring them in sin, making money off of pornography or off of prostitution. We're talking about entire industries that are taking in phenomenal amounts of money, and every single person that's engaged in that and drawing people into sin, including God's people into sin, it would be better that a millstone were put around their neck and they were thrown into uh, the sea and drowned there than the judgment that awaits them. I think about the entertainment industry, the movie shows, the television that undermine biblical morality, that glamorize the practice of sin. I think about so many video games that do much the same thing, internet sites. I think about politicians who pass laws that protect sin and they advance sin in our society, and they destroy lives as a result, and they overthrow the faith of so many. And Jesus gives this warning to this kind of a person, and it's a serious, serious warning that He gives. He doesn't say stuff like this unless it's really important that it be heeded. There is an awful judgment that comes for leading people into bondage of sin and away from God. And Jesus then goes on and He calls anybody that is engaged in that, anyone that is engaged in anything that overthrows the faith of any of His children, He says, woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. Sometimes you talk about the world and uh, you know, we, you know, pornography, for instance, is just an epidemic. It's a plague in the world, and it's a plague even within the church and so many other things, it's so many sins that are just prevalent within the culture. And we just can begin to say, oh, well, you know, what can you do? It's a fallen world. And the fact of the matter is, it is a fallen world, and it is a messy place that we live in, and it's not going to be made completely right until this gives way to a new heaven and a new earth, but it does not mean 
that God does not hold responsible the people who make it into the world that it is in an ungodly way. He notices that. So you can't just look and say, well, everybody's doing it, or that's just the way that it is. I'm just getting in line at the trough like everybody else. Hey, the world is like this. It's always been like this from Adam and Eve, but it does not excuse a single individual from the CEO of the company to the secretary in the company or in wherever the environment would be from their personal responsibility and all of this. And then Jesus said, so offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. And he tells them, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than uh, having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell. And so uh, Jesus instructs people that are involved in these sins that uh, enlarge sin in the world, overthrow the faith of his people, lead them into sin, and, and so forth. He's telling them, in essence, very, very poetic language here. He is telling them to do whatever is necessary in their life to avoid offending God's children, no matter what the cost, to avoid being drawn away, uh, drawing them away from God and into a life of sin. And Jesus is talking about hands. He's talking about feet. He's talking about eyes. How many of you like your hands? Yes, we like our hands. How many of you like your feet? We like our feet. How many do we like your eyes? We like our eyes. And so Jesus is talking about things that we consider to be, they're highly prized to us. They are very, very valuable uh, to us. And Jesus is saying that this kind of person needs to take whatever personal loss is necessary, no matter how much money they would lose, no matter how much position they would lose, no matter how much power they would lose in cutting themselves off from these industries or institutions that are undermining the faith of God's people. He said, whatever the cost might be to, to uh, 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 exit from that kind of thing, uh, is that it's important to do that. So these are valuable things. It'd be better to cut away whatever is valuable in us, not literally hands, feet, eyes. It won't do any good on on that, Jesus uses the same language talking about being ruthless with sin in our lives in the Sermon on the Mount, but here speaking to these people, listen, turn away from the direction that you're going in, no matter how valuable or how great the loss you're going to incur in order to do that. Very strong word, but very, very uh, good counsel. I think about… Um, I don't watch a lot of television, and um, 
And I, I don't know the last time I've watched a sitcom. It doesn't make me any better than somebody else who does, depending on the sitcom. But I, didn't see, I just see the commercials for them, and I'm highly offended. But you look at how much that goes on today is directly aimed at Christianity, mocking it, uh, making it look stupid. Christians are stupid and so forth. And I hope these people know that God is watching all of it, He is listening to all of it, and there is a judgment associated with it. Nobody is getting away with anything in this world, and certainly not in the realm of the most important thing in life, and that is people's eternal destination. And here in verse 10, Jesus said, take heed that you do not despise uh, uh, one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And so here is a, a passage where, uh, where we get the idea of an, uh, a guardian angel for each child or for each person. And what Jesus is basically uh, communicating here is he's reminding these people that their treatment, their abuse, their victimization of God's people in this way, that the report of that is constantly being brought to God the Father in the heavenly seeing by way of the angel that is assigned to each child of God. And so he's saying, I'm in heaven, we're fully of praise of what's going on here. Again, God knows every person that is profiting from this, uh, this kind of thing and aware of all of it. And then in verse 11, Jesus, all of this stuff is going on to stumble God's people, to stumble their faith, to lead them in sin and so forth. And lest we leave this particular passage and think that, you know, here, um, you know, the situation isn't under control, Jesus said, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. He said, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And of course, any shepherd would do that. And if he should find it, then assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep, the restoration of that sheep, than over the 99 that did not go astray. So here's the shepherd, speaks about the shepherd's joy of finding a sheep and restoring it uh, that was lost. And Jesus goes on to say, even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that uh, one of these little ones should perish. So you have people who were raised in the faith, they're truly born again, have a relationship with God, and then somehow along the way, we have the ability to resist these things and so forth, but somewhere along the way, they give themselves to sin or they get themselves in some kind of an educational setting in which their uh, faith is undermined and uh, in, in terms of not being ready to handle the arguments of the world and so forth and, and all, and they're stumbled. They begin to believe, you know, the theories of man, and they abandon their Christianity, and they abandon their faith. Well, boy, too bad it's all over for them. No, 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 no. Jesus never lets go of them. Those are his children. Those are his children. And this whole thing about the shepherd and the sheep and going after the one, he goes after them. 
and you have some children in your family or nieces or nephews or whoever it might be, they're in this very state and their faith has been overthrown. Now they're out there somewhere on, you know, involved in sin or whatever it might be, and it looks like, oh, they're never going to come back. Jesus goes to find them and to bring them back into his fold, and he will never stop until he does that. Now, sometimes it's hard to know whether someone, um, you know, they uh, get stumbled or they go into sin or they, you know, reject Christianity and so forth, but they've never been born again, and, and that, that dynamic has never happened within their life like Jesus talked about the little children. But a person who has truly been born again and, and here they've gotten blindsided, victimized by people who are waiting to make a victim of them, and they're kind of innocent in this, and they get hit, and, and, but there's something real between them and God, and they're confused. God goes out, and He finds them, and He brings them back, and how active He is in that. I won't ask for a show of hands. For how many of you in this room, raised in the things of the Lord, went off, you became such a smarty pants because you took, you know, one year of psychology in junior college or philosophy or whatever and threw all of Christianity away under some charismatic, you know, professor that you had or some sin grabbed you the moment that you walked out of the front door of the household that you were raised in the things of the Lord and, and all, and you go out and you do all of your monkey business and all of this kind of stuff, and then what happens? One day you find yourself back in church. You find yourself back around the things of the Lord. And why is that? Because you're so smart or you're… No, no, no. By the way, this, I'm giving my testimony, by the way. And uh, it's because he went out, he found us, he found us in a place where our sin now has, we've been in it long enough for it to be exposed for the disappointment and the bondage that it is, whatever we believed in instead of him. Now it took us a while, but now we're seeing the considerable flaws within it, the fallacy of it. And then there he is, in the middle of the night, in the morning, on the weekend, on a weekday. There he is to take us by the hand and bring us back into the flock. It's a wonderful, wonderful truth about the Lord, his commitment to his flock. Now, when we come to verse 15, uh, Jesus here deals with conflict resolution uh, between Christians. And uh, the world that we live in is a world of conflict. And there's, uh, there, all of us are going to have conflict between uh, other people. It's just the fallenness of the world. And so we're going to have conflict with people that aren't Christians, and just because people are Christians, it doesn't mean that we're not going to have conflict with them. And, uh, and so we have to learn how to resolve conflict in our relationships with one another. And so Jesus speaks about uh, how uh, to, to deal with that. And sometimes uh, we can't even uh, get along with ourselves, let alone with other people. I'm fond of this uh, old story about a man who was shipwrecked, and he's living all alone on a deserted island for many, many years. And then one day a ship happens on the island and proceeds to rescue him. But before they leave the island and take him to the ship, he wants to give them a tour of the island. And there's these three huts that are on the island, and the man pointed to the first hut, and he said, that's my home. And he pointed to the second hut, and he said, that's my church. And when he was asked about the third hut, he said, that's the church I used to go to. So, 
Sometimes we can be conflicted even within ourselves in terms of trying to get along. And so it, it is a, a reality. Jesus tells us how to resolve it when it does occur. So he says, moreover, if your brother sins against you. So it's Christian to Christian. It's not talking uh, necessarily about how we're to conduct ourselves in dealing with unsaved people. This addresses specifically those that are within the family of God. And, and he tells us that if you're, uh, a brother sins against you. Now, it's important to recognize that word sin. And this is speaking about how to, uh, you know, restore a relationship where something's been broken as a result of sin on the part of somebody. I don't think that Jesus is encouraging us uh, to approach every single Christian every time they're less than perfect and rebuke them. That's not what he's uh, doing here. How miserable of a church would that be? Or what relationship would you remain in in your life if every time you uh, didn't sin but you made a mistake or something like this and somebody came and, and used, you know, Matthew 18 to try and, and correct you? Nobody would want to be around a Christian like that or a church like that. And, and so it has to be legitimate sin so often, I think, in our Christian life. And it's one of the great things about growing a little bit older in the Lord. Sometimes... And very often, as a matter of fact, you will hear a Christian say something or you will watch them do something that really isn't the best thing to say or to do at the given moment. And uh, we realize, wow, Jesus wouldn't have handled that situation in that way. And we'll think to ourselves as we're kind of observing it, you know, boy, that you know, that doesn't really characterize their life. They must be under real pressure today or they've got other problems going on right now. I don't see any need to confront them. I'm, I'm just going to pray for them over the next few uh, days. Or sometimes we see someone fall short in a situation and they're trying as hard as they can. There's no real severe damage done on the part of the other Christians that were in the circle and listened to what it was that they said. Nobody stumbled or anything like that. And you just look and you say, you know, they did the best that they could there. One day they'll see that a little bit different. One day as they grow, they'll handle that situation in a different way. And you just go on uh, about uh, your business. And we just lift them up to the Lord in prayer unless the Lord specifically directs us to approach the person or, uh, uh, concerning it. So this passage isn't telling us to be sin sniffers and just kind of actively searching out every flaw in everyone. I love the Proverb 19 verse 11. The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger and his glory is to overlook a transgression. So sometimes people sin and there, it isn't necessary to confront them over their sin. Sometimes a transgression can be overlooked because it hasn't done any harm and uh, we understand the situation and it isn't what they're like and I've survived whatever it is uh, that, they, that they've done. I believe that what Jesus is speaking to here is of sins that are committed by someone against us and they really stumble us. They really stumble us in our relationship with them, and they stumble us in our walk with the Lord, our relationship with them. And that's what he's, he's talking about here. Wow, that one hurts, that one messes me up a little bit, and that one does damage to this relationship. 
And again, I think it's important to go back to the kind of thing that warrants this kind of process. It is if your brother sins against you. Not talking about a personality conflict, not talking about the fact that there's a lot of different ways to do this kind of a thing, and they did it a way that I wouldn't do. It has to actually be a sin that's black and white in the Scriptures that then uh, stumbles me or it harms the relationship or stumbles me in my relationship uh, with, uh, with the Lord. There's three steps that are to be taken, Jesus uh, gives us here. He said, if your brother sins against you, then go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Very significant. So even when a person sins against me, chapter and verse, sins against me, and I find it necessary to confront them concerning the sin, step number one is to go to them privately. And uh, all situations like this are to be handled as privately as possible. Have you noticed that the Lord handles your sin as privately as possible? Have you ever had someone come to you and say, wow, I mean, I was in prayer to the Lord the other night, and He told me all about the sins in your life. Wouldn't it be horrible if God was, you know, fast and loose and talking about that? No, He deals with us individually. He keeps it private. He only escalates as it needs to be escalated, and we're to be like Him in this regard. And so, you go to Him, He says, and tell Him, uh, go Him, tell Him His, his fault. In other words, communicate uh, to Him and uh, tell him alone. If he hears you, he goes, man, you are so right. I am sorry. Would you forgive me? He said, then you have gained your brethren. And the whole idea in this isn't to say, man, that person really ticked me off, and I'm going to go over there and find them as quick as I can, and I'm going to read them the riot act. That is not what Jesus is laying out here. The whole goal is that it, because the Bible says if someone's been overtaken in a fault, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, if any man be taken over in a fault, let you who are spiritual go to such a one and restore them. It has to happen under the control of the Holy Spirit. You go to that person and then with the idea of gaining my brother, uh, the, the uh, relationship being restored. In other words, uh, relationships are supposed to be valued in the body of Christ. But if he doesn't hear you, you go one-on-one -on -one and he says, that's bogus and I'm not, I don't have to put up with that and, I, and I, you're not going to get a I'm sorry or any repentance out of me. Then he said step two is to take with you one or more, uh, one or two more that by and hear Jesus quotes Deuteronomy, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So step number two, if it escalates to that place, is to bring two or three other Christians with you so they can then listen to the situation and then uh, uh, determine the facts related to the situation and then uh, confront the person with their sin uh, once again. And then if there's no resolution on that level, if he uh, refuses to hear them, then it's to go to the church 
uh, body as a whole, and I take this to be taking it, uh, certainly in a larger church, take it to the leadership of the church and say we're having trouble uh, getting this situation worked out between uh, these two people here. This is the course. We've taken step number one, step number two. Now we'd like to have the pastors involved in this and, and finding a resolution and some reconciliation. Then they tell it to the church, but if the man then or woman refuses to even hear the church, they reject all uh, authority within the church, um, and they say, forget it, I'm not repenting, I'm not admitting that that was sin, I'm not changing, then he's to be put out of the church and excommunicated until he does so, and he is to be treated like a heathen or a tax collector, which is language that just speaks as, uh, as an outsider uh, of the church. If everybody in the church does precisely what they want, and they say, I'm going to sin, and I'm going to sin against who I want, and I'm going to do whatever I want, and everybody just has to live with that, then you're not going to have any church that's going to be left because everyone will just simply so be offending one another in sin, and it will just splinter, uh, splinter the church. So this is a mechanism that Jesus put in place in order for that, to be, uh, that kind of thing to be uh, prevented and for there to be a mechanism for restoration. And then if a person will not listen, they need to be put out because that's a poison. That's a leaven that will then destroy that local body. That person needs to go out, and that's the way the world operates. Go out into the world, get your fill of that, but realize you have to come in and be a responsible citizen in the kingdom of God and, uh, and wait until they're willing uh, to do that. So, these are the steps that uh, Jesus lays out uh, for uh, that, that kind of, uh, of a process. And, um, and I think it's also helpful to realize as well in this that it's not the, uh, that this sin that's committed here is a sin by one Christian against another. Uh, there are other scenarios in which church discipline has to be meted out. And I think specifically of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Peter, uh, Paul takes and he uses his authority as a leader within the church, where you've got a man who is sleeping with his stepmother in the church, sexual immorality like this in the church, and everybody's turning a blind eye to it and saying, well, that's okay. Paul takes and from another city addresses the situation, and he says, I judge it as being present. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Remove him from the church before he destroys the church and let him figure out what he wants to be a part of, sin or the body of Christ, but get him out before he influences the whole church for sexual uh, immorality. So what we have here in Matthew 18 is sin of one Christian against another Christian. Uh, Paul dealt with in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when the sin was one person against the entire church, and it's affecting the health and the wholeness of the church, the witness of the church as a whole. He steps in, declares it to be leaven, and calls the person to be uh, removed without a process as we have uh, here. Now, all of this, of course, is a very, very miserable business. If you've ever been involved in like a church discipline situation, it's very unpleasant. 
And uh, no pastor wakes up in the morning saying, oh, good, I hope I get to disfellowship someone today. It's always very, very hard. And if a pastor has a pastor's heart, then it's even harder on him because he cares about people. So when this process escalates to the point where now the two individuals are involved, now two or three more are involved, now the leadership is involved, this is weighing on a lot of people, and they need a little bit of encouragement in what they're involved in. Because when you do something like this, and I don't care how well you do it, you can do step one, step two, step three, and then that person goes out, and you can say goodbye to their mama and their papa, and you can say goodbye to their aunts and their uncles and every third cousin and every friend they have in the church. I mean, everybody pays a price to make that stand. And so it's a difficult thing to do. And so Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And uh, again, I say to you that if two or, uh, of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And so Jesus is saying, if you go through this process and you have to make that final kind of decision that has to be there where there is the binding and, and the loosing, so to speak. You're making a judgment on the situation and, and, and so forth. I, I confirm the decision that you come to as a result of the process, and I stand by it. And then one of the great uh, passages, not only concerning church discipline, but in all regards in terms of Christian fellowship, verse 20, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And so he says, I'll be active in the situation. I will take care of you. It's a messy business, but sometimes it must be uh, done. Now, um, we will stop there tonight because this next section on forgiveness will never get it done in 30 seconds. And uh, so I had, I mean, I have five minutes, but it might as well be 30 seconds for this passage. So we'll pick things up in chapter 18, verse 21, um, uh, next week, Lord willing. Let's ask the worship team to come forward and give us a chance to lead us in a worship song or two as we close here this evening in a little additional time to just give some consideration to what it is that we've looked at here tonight.